0: Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Hello, big hearted human. I am thrilled to bring you this episode as part of the School of Wellbeing's Best of 2022 series. This six-part series will be shared each Monday in addition to a brand new episode on Friday to give you a double dose of well-being education to get you recharged and excited about the year ahead. These episodes represent the ones that you love the most, the ones that you listen to most frequently, and the ones that I feel particularly proud of. If you haven't had a chance to listen to this episode yet, I hope you enjoy it. And if you've already heard it, it will refresh your memory and take your understanding to the next level. Thank you for listening and being a part of this growing community of big-hearted educators. I hope you enjoy this game-changing conversation. Julie, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Meg, thank you so
1: much for having me. Thank you for bringing me to Australia, all the way from the United States here in in, uh, Northern California. I'm visiting you from there and I'm delighted to be with you and your listeners.
0: I am so excited about this conversation, Julie, because I came across your work years ago before I was a parent and I was working in schools and started to notice that young people that looked like they had everything underneath were feeling quite disconnected and unsure of what they really wanted. They knew what everybody else wanted of them, and yet they were struggling to know what they wanted. And now as i got older and I have my own children and working with a range of different people, it comes up more and more. When we're driven by performance, there's this tension of, do I actually want to be performing? Do I want to be working this way? And so both of your books, How to Raise an Adult, and Your Turn, (laughs) Time to Be an Adult, just really capture my attention because this world of adulthood is so complex, is so nuanced, and I'd love today to explore it in a way that helps people take the next step.
1: I love it. I'm here for that. I'm excited to have that conversation. I want to be sure your listeners know as they hear me, because I do have a tendency to get quite stroppy, certain, and blunt, and frank. Whatever I say today is informed by the fact that I was a university dean working with other people's kids and seeing what you saw, frankly, unhappy, disconnected, fearful, unsure, even though they appeared to have everything. And I was curious about what that was. But also, I'm a mom. I have a 22-year-old son and a 20-year-old daughter. And I realized I was on track to become the very parent I was criticizing on our university campus. So I come from those dual perspectives. I have seen the harm of it, and I'm also replicating it in my own family, which frankly made me very motivated to figure out what the heck is going on and how to change it.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having the courage to ask yourself those questions, because people like I who come behind you can really learn from that. And I'm noticing that in my own parenting with a four-year-old and a two-year-old some things that I'm naturally drawn to do and then I have to pull myself back and say, is that helpful or is that harmful? Is that more about me not wanting to feel embarrassed or wanting to get it right or is that about their growth and learning? So to give listeners a context, Julie, how did you get so curious about helping young people transition into adulthood to become capable adults that are living life aligned with their own values?
1: Well, that is the work of a university dean. I think we go into this line of work uh, because we care deeply about humans becoming themselves. We know how important the age group 18 to 24 is, or not the age group, but those years in the life of a person are so um, such a catalyst. And when you work on a university campus, you you're helping young people understand who they are, make better decisions accordingly. And so- It was within that context on a particular campus out here in California, Stanford University, that I saw what every college and university dean in my country were seeing in the late 1990s, which was a set of young people who were highly attended by parents, meaning the parents were showing up, maybe literally, but certainly on the phone or by email, wanting to handle the stuff of life. I need to register my child for class. I need to speak with a professor. I'm unhappy about the grade. I'm concerned about a roommate dispute. My child is gonna go study abroad in Sydney next term from the US. And when are you gonna have a parent orientation about that? So we know we can be successful abroad. I heard that we, the pronoun we, creep in when a parent was really trying to say, my daughter, my son, my child. I began to get clear that the parents seemed to think they had a very important role to play. (laughs) And they did. They were supposed to pay for uni. (laughs) Um, But they also seemed to think they had to argue with the professor about a grade. And I just sort of put my hands on my hips and looked around and thought, what is going on? These young people could be serving in the United States army. They could be in a workplace right now, expected to be accountable and responsible and so forth. But here they are in a very privileged environment where they are really offered quite a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of safety nets and supports and resources. Why do the parents think their child is so incapable? It perplexed me. And as I began to pay more attention I began to connect the dots and see, oh, these parents who feel the need to intervene in the life of their child, air quotes, also seem to have children, my students, who are less capable. You know, I didn't quite understand the cause and effect until I had paid attention to it for a few years. But these, some of these students, by no means all, the students of these parents, they liked all this help. They were used to it. They didn't know another path. They didn't know that they were supposed to have gotten increasingly responsible for themselves throughout childhood, such that they could metaphorically stand on their own two feet in young adulthood. They just thought it was normal that a parent would fix, manage, handle everything. And that's what really concerned me. Because I was like, wait a minute, where is that hunger within you? that buzz you get from solving your own problems, as Kelly Corrigan calls it, why isn't that there? Why are you not yearning for your own right to live this life and do these things? Why are you so enamored of the privilege of all this help? Why have you lost the hunger to differentiate yourself from these parents? You are not a dog on a leash. You are a human, and you've got to learn to do for yourself. And it's terrifying, but it's also important And it also gives you this buzz, as I've said. So I was worried that we seem to have raised a generation of people and we bred the yearning for self-reliance slash self-efficacy slash agency right out of them. And that made me say, oh, no, what happens to a human, let alone a generation of humans, if they lack agency, what's going to become of all of us if we seem to have bred that innate sense of, I know I exist because I can make stuff happen. That's agency, right? I know it. What's going to happen to all of us if we raise our children this way? And of course, then people began correlating rates of anxiety and depression in young people with having been over attended in childhood. And that's where you see the impact of taking agency away from somebody. You see the impact on the young person's mental health and well-being. So that's, in a nutshell, a long-winded nutshell, what made me curious, what made me concerned, and what made me pursue this drive to inform more people about what was going on.
0: Oh, Julie, listening to you, I get a buzz. No good. I I get a buzz because what I'm hearing from you is you're advocating for the young person. You're advocating for them to have a future, for them to have spark, for them to go out into the world and say, I am capable, I can take risks, I can problem solve. I can do things. And what it sounds like is this certain style of parenting and also the way that school systems are set up, it's not always conducive to that self-determination, to that spark. And so what, what were you starting to notice on campus that you had never seen before?
1: Well, the things that I just mentioned, right? The parents who uh, wanted to speak to a professor, the parents that wanted to get involved if the student wasn't getting along with their roommate, the parents who felt the need to register their kid for class. It's just stuff you'd expect a student to be able to do or be willing to try to do for themselves. It was as if the student was in the parents' mind still 5 or 7 or 9 years old, not 18, 19, 20, 21, 22.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting from me coming from a secondary school background is I'm starting to think that's quite commonplace in secondary schools. And so we have a role to play in how can we support young people to be having those conversations? How can we be stepping back a little bit and giving a little bit more space so the young person has the opportunity to come to the teacher before the parent jumps in? It was very commonplace in the schools that I've worked in that would be getting emails at 11 o'clock 2am, all these different times that have come through from a parent that's really distressed because a young person's come home, said something. So they've fired off an email to us. And then the next day we get into school and the situation's resolved. Like the friendship issue, they've recovered.
1: Right. First of all, I'm delighted that this is happening in Australia. I'm not delighted, but often here in America, we think of Australia as the perfect place uh, where all the problems are not Present. All the problems we have are not present where you are. It makes us want to come and stay, which I know y'all are not into. Ah, you're very good at keeping people away. But it I am, you know, this is this is a global issue. It happens in many, many different communities and cultures, regardless of ethnicity and race. I'm just fascinating to hear you tell this. I want to ask you: is it normal in secondary schools um where you are that there's a parent portal that alerts parents to the marks that a student has? Earned that day in school?
0: Yes, different schools handle it differently, but there's much more access to information than ever before.
1: Right. So I'm asking that because I think many of those software programs were developed right here where I live in Silicon Valley by some software genius who never spoke with a psychologist or an educator about are these technological advancements actually going to support kids learning? And their mental health and well-being. When we adopt these technologies, we basically have a system that's standing in for communication between parent and child, child and teacher, parent and teacher, right? It's like the software told me you didn't do very well today. Now the parent is mad. I thought we studied, we worked hard on this wee, 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 right? Is it because we're it's our ego or we're just worried about our kids' advancement? Whatever it is, we are so all up in our kids every single project quiz piece of homework, exam, problem set, whatever it might be. And these technologies that schools will often put out there and encourage parents to use are part of the problem. If your school has a piece of software that allows you to see your kids' marks every day or every week instead of at the end of the term only, the school is basically telling you to be a good parent, you need to be looking at this information. And I am here to say, if your school has that, refuse to look at it, Don't ever open it. I never did across my kids' secondary school years. I just thought it's their turn to be a ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade, which is what we call it here. It's their turn. I hope I have a good enough relationship with them of trust and love and open communication such that if things start to go off the rails, they will tell us. But I also know at the end of each term, I will see a grade and I'm willing to let life play out like that cuz I want my kid to learn to develop a work ethic and to care about seeking help and resources and to be accountable for their own activities. It is not my turn to be in algebra 1. I've had my turn. It's now my kid's turn and I don't do them any benefits by fixing their homework when it's wrong just to make sure they get, you know, that perfect grade, which is also what's happening. Parents are overhelping with the homework to get the right grades. Instead of saying, wait a minute, I need to raise a kid who can work hard and recover and rebound themselves and earn this themselves. So there's a lot that's happening at the school level that's actually playing a part in this problem, whether it's the technology or simply an unspoken practice that, college, that administrators and teachers know that parents are overhelping with the homework. These are places where schools can step forward and say, you know what? No, we do not want parents involved in this science project. There is no role for you to play in writing this essay. These things must be done by your young. Let me put it differently. In secondary education, we have a sense of a student should progress from, you know, A to B to C to D across their four years in terms of knowledge about geography or history or English or math or whatever. We need to also be saying to ourselves as educators, how are we ensuring that every year they, get, they develop more agency? more responsibility and are more accountable so that they graduate from here, not just with these academic subjects mastered, but having this tremendous
0: sense of confidence in their own capabilities. I love hearing you talk with such passion because it makes so much sense. If we're constantly micromanaging every single day, we're not looking to the week to the term and that overall perspective of how are they traveling generally because if we get caught up in every single day we're getting caught up also in adolescent brain development which is rather intense their days are really intense when emotions are high they're really high so if we come along for the ride that is not a very helpful dance because if children are feeling anxious parents are feeling anxious then Parents don't want them to feel anxious, so then they're trying to soothe that. And it can become this real vicious cycle where if we gave ourselves a bit more space, and I love that you brought the word up, trust, a little bit more trust, that it is your turn. It is your turn to try this essay. It's your turn to ask for help. It's your turn to maybe fall short and try again. Like that is how we learn. That is how we get that buzz is giving space for others to try where I think there's a lot of us that that space is a very uncomfortable place to be. We want to just fix, soothe, jump in.
1: Right. Brene Brown, who writes about the importance of being able to be vulnerable and the strength really that comes from being able to be vulnerable would tell us, look, parent, I know you want to make the sad feelings go away. By handling the thing, or by telling the kid that it doesn't really matter in some way, trying to make the bad thing uh, not happen at all, or or to deflate the experience of it. And what we're supposed to do is sit with them in their frustration, in their sadness, in their fear, and say, "I can see you're frustrated, sad, afraid. Do you want to talk? I'm here." In other words, empathize and show compassion. But then, after suitable set of moments, put a smile on our face, put our hand on their shoulder and say, but you know what, buddy, I know it's not going to be this way forever and get up and move out of the room. It shows them we're not afraid of what they're going through. It shows them we have confidence about their future and we have confidence that they can handle it. And that's the missing piece in this overparenting. At the top, you talked about it being loving. We think it's loving to offer this kind of help to always be there, always handle everything. Of course, we love them and we think this is an extension of our love. But what it's actually telling their developing adolescent brain is my parents don't think I can do this. Therefore, they have to help. My parents don't believe I'm smart, capable, hardworking. They don't think I care enough about my own life. They have to manage my life for me. It's a terribly damaging set of messages to be sending a developing brain.
0: It sounds like we're robbing young people of the opportunity to develop confidence and the ability to take risks and problem solve where you don't want it to be messy. And yet that is where life is. Life is messy. Life is messy. And the satisfaction we get from sweating like, oh,
1: good job. I just worked on this thing. It was messy. It was hard. And I'm like tired and aching, but I did it. That's that buzz. Like I did it. Let me tell you something, Meg. See, now I just tried to pronounce it in Australian. Meg instead of Meg. Meg. Um, I know your listeners are like, it's not called Australian, Julie, it's called English. I realize that, but we've had a little bit of fun at the top of the show about how differently we speak the same language. And of course, everybody thinks an Australian accent is so cool. And and you're getting sparkly and tingly from listening to me talk about these issues. And I'm getting sparkly and tingly just listening to you speak. Um, and I've almost lost my train of thought, but not really. Okay. So here's what people ask me. What is the proper distance? I don't want to just abandon my kid. Of course not. I'm telling you not to hover over your kid either. So what's the proper distance? And what I try to offer is think about how you are with your best friend's kid. You've got a longtime dear friend. They've got kids. Or if you don't have that person, you have a sister or brother and you've got nieces and nephews that belong to those. Okay. so now we're we're picturing either your best friend's kid or a niece or a nephew You go over to that house. It is a Friday afternoon. The sun is setting and you're having a glass of wine or a cup of tea. And the kid comes in, you're sitting there with whomever is their parent. And the kid bursts in the door and stomps in and throws their knapsack or backpack or whatever you call it down on the floor and shouts, Well, I guess I just failed chemistry. You are going to say, Oh, love, come here. How are you? It's been so long. It's great to see you. Give me a hug. What was that? Something about chemistry? I'm so sorry. You know, I know a thing or two about chemistry. If you ever need me, I'm here. But what's good in your life today? And that kid will light up and feel seen and connected and supported by you. But if you're the parent of that kid, your first reaction is going to be, what do you mean we're failing chemistry? We've been studying so hard. The parent's ego is so intertwined with the kid's life that it is if they are one being and that's what's unhealthy. So we have to try to be the auntie, be the uncle, be the friend of the kid's parent in our mind. That's the healthy distance we're supposed to have with our own children where we don't act like their trouble in chemistry hurts us. That's the distance we're supposed to give. We're supposed to care and empower.
0: And that's it. Back off. Really? That is such a skill to be able to separate what is going on for our young person and what is going on for us and who owns what. Whose business is that? And I love the idea of thinking about your niece or nephew or a good friend's child because I know for myself, I do have much more distance when it comes to that. I have much wider perspective. My perspective is so wide when I'm dealing with other people's children. Right. And I've noticed with my own children, my perspective comes a little bit more narrow. And so it is a skill to get the blinkers off. Let's get some perspective in the scheme of things. This is not a big deal. This is just a moment. And as I was reading your book, there were certain words. It's like they put a spell on me. There are words that put a spell on me. And there was a word in your book that I thought, yes, this is what we need to do more of, and it's wince. We need to wince. They have that wince of like, oh, that you didn't just do that. And sit with it. Wince and watch instead of wince and run. Hold back a little bit. Just watch. Give them the opportunity to recover. And I see this every day with my young boys, that something will happen to them, and I wince. I wait, I watch, and I let them decide if they're hurt or not. Where I noticed a few years ago that they would something would happen and they would look to me. It's like they're almost looking to me, am I okay or am I not okay? And so now I'm learning this skill of letting them have their experience, let me witness them in their experience, and then support them in the next step. Yeah.
1: That's so beautiful. I want to give credit where credit is due. The notion of wincing is one that I got from the authors of a book called GIST, The Essence of Raising Life-Ready Kids. It came out in 2013 and the co-authors were two guys, a psychologist and a pediatrician, both from the Minneapolis, Minnesota region of our country and these were their conclusions after seeing so many kids and young adults who seem to lack the perseverance that comes from having made mistakes and experiencing what they call curveball moments and they say you know you're gonna wince but you have to silently say to yourself perfect that's just perfect it's just what he needed or she needed to happen at least once in his childhood because of the skills that get built
0: It gets me excited to think about what would be possible for all of us if we allowed ourselves more opportunities to try things, Yeah, to not feel like we have this expectation that everything that we do is going to be perfect and permanent.
1: Yeah. And also, I think we are so afraid in part because we've been fed this message that there is a right path in life there's a right secondary school there's a right university there's a right job there's a right career there's a right place to live there's a right amount of money to make when that is what you're headed for then it feels terribly frightening to do anything that might be a step in a different direction or you know less tried and true proven to lead a person toward all of those things but we who have lived a lot of life know that even when you walk that path and get those things it doesn't get you happiness. It just means you did those things. And then often you look around and say, wait a minute, I thought I did everything right. Why am I so miserable? Turns out the money doesn't bring happiness. Turns out the right house doesn't bring happiness. Doesn't, turns out the career everybody thinks is you know, an impressive career doesn't bring happiness unless you love it. You have to be good at it and love it for it to be work that will bring you that sense of meaning and purpose and joy. And so uh, we know that this narrow definition of success that we're afraid to stray from may lead to a certain career and house and income, but doesn't, by definition, doesn't automatically lead to happiness and joy. And isn't that what we want for our kids? That is where I have finally gotten. I told you mine are 22 and 20. My little one, 20 years old, has been an artist since she got here, since she could hold a pen in her hand. And I dismissed it. I just poo-pooed it. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's just, you know, it's not going to get her into the right university, right? It was working with other people's kids when I was a dean on a university campus, listening to them unpack their sadness, anguish over being forced to walk this right path when they really wanted to be on a completely different path. And I could advocate for that person's kid, but I was unable to see my own in my own house. And finally, working with enough of those kids belonging to other people, I realized I am doing the same thing to my kids. So I'm proud to be able to say this child of mine, Avery, whose artistry and proclivity to be an artist, I dismissed and disdained. She is an artist. And I am so proud of her and who she is and her pursuits around theater and music and dance and arts production. This is what she's pursuing. And I am ashamed that for the first eight or 10 years of her life, I didn't appreciate that that was a valid path. But I came to appreciate that it definitely is and that it's not on me or anybody else to tell anybody what path to pursue. My kid is joyful in the work that she does, even if many, many people would say, well, what's she going to do with that? I'm here to tell you, my kid will figure out what she's going to do with that. She knows who she is, and that is probably the greatest asset she takes forward.
0: Thank you for sharing that story and highlighting that it took you some time to acknowledge what lit her up, have the space to really celebrate that and honour that, because maybe in our rush to get things right, to be at the right school, to be at the right university, to get the right job, we're not creating that space to notice, what does light me up? Do I really want to do this? Or am I doing this because I got the score and the score says I need to be a doctor or a lawyer? Or am I doing this because it's something that I really, really want to do? So when it comes to being an adult, what are signs to you when a young person has made or is making that transition into feeling like their life is their own?
1: Well, first of all, there's an aliveness in their eyes when they talk about what's going on. You know, when a human being is excited by their pursuits, even if we may not really get it, we may not understand it. We may not have a basis for understanding it. Just to be in the presence of someone who's excited about what they've got going on, it's delightful. It shows. And so that passion that we talk about that kids need to find. It's very bodily evident in their eyes and their face when they're discussing something that that really lights them up. It literally does light them up. So so that's a piece of evidence uh, that I would look for and that you can notice about yourself. You know when you get animated talking about that thing, you know that's a clue to you that that might be your thing, <laughs> and that's worth following up on following through on being curious about taking forward to the next level, whatever it may be. A curiosity, maybe you take a course, maybe it becomes your focus, your concentration, your major, maybe you get a job, maybe you start to do some research and other activities in furtherance of becoming more adept and skilled and have a deeper knowledge around that thing. So that's what it looks like. And You can't manufacture it. You can't fake it if it's not there either. So that's where you have the opposite, which is the very successful person who's been told what to do and is doing it and everyone's happy, but the kid is not happy because you just see that their eyes are dead. You know, they just sort of look at you like, yeah, I'm really working hard. I'm really proud of myself, but they don't believe it. They are working hard. They're not proud in the ways they want to be. They're sort of dying inside because they haven't been given permission to be who they are.
0: I love that idea for us to watch our young people and see when they light up what gets them excited and how can we acknowledge that even if we don't understand it even if it's not what lights us up how can we support them in that i think that is such a beautiful cue to look out for i know already with my four and two year old i know when they're lit up about something and that's the beautiful thing about such young children is everything is so obvious their body <laughs> is speaking to you in every second of the day and you can tell when they are lit up by life yeah and. Now I'm thinking about a lot of the adolescents that I've worked with and senior secondary I have I don't see that spark yeah as much you know how can we take time to think about that spark and give them opportunities to get that buzz of I am capable I can do things I've got autonomy in the world and I can have an impact I can create a conscious impact. I don't need to wait for permission from other people to do what I need to do. I can do things in small ways. I can do things in big ways. And I am capable. That is such a beautiful message for us to really think about.
1: Talking with you, given where you are, I would be remiss in not mentioning a person I highlight in my new book for young adults, Your Turn. Um, It's a young man named Sean, who is Australian, who closes the book. His story closes the book. He came out of secondary school and went straight to the working world, as he put it, where he started out stocking shelves for liquor stores and convenience stores and big digging big holes for a pool installer. But he quickly realized that as a lifetime level lover of sport, he ought to try to find work in that field. And he did a year-long course that offered a diploma in sport development, which led to a job with a cricket organization and then to a job with the Western Australia Football Commission where his role was to promote the game of Australian Rose football in schools and community centers and after school programs. And that led to a passion for going and finding young adults in the outer regions of Australia, not the cities, not the big smoke, as he told me it's called. These outer regions where indigenous communities live and to help youth who are highly talented, appreciate in sport, appreciate the opportunities available to them if they cultivate that. Capacity and so this is a kid who didn't go to university, followed his passion, created this amazing career, became a coach of people in an athletic sense, then in a personal development sense. And unexpectedly, he and his girlfriend found themselves pregnant quite young, and they had that baby and have raised that baby. And the baby is young still, but you know this is Sean's journey, and Sean is one of the most happy and successful people I've ever come across. And he's still in his 20s. And I attribute this to Sean being able to be Sean every step of the way and just continuing to ask himself, what do I want to do next by way of my own growth and development? Okay, I'm going to figure that out. I'm going to try. You know, I'm going to keep going. He's a beautiful, beautiful human. And I put his story in my book because I have such profound respect for him and the life he is crafting for himself.
0: Yes. And having that mindset of I'll figure it out. Yeah. It doesn't have to be right. Yeah. There is no right. What is
1: right, right? There's no right track. There's no right path. There is no right. You want to know what success is? Success is figuring out what you're good at, what you love and going and doing that work and getting better and better at it. Whether you're successful, in other words, is determined by are you in line with what you know to be true about you? One of the things that makes me so sad, Meg, is when you have somebody who's, say, highly skilled in math and science, and air quotes everyone, tells them they should go be an engineer. And so even though they're yearning to be a wilderness naturalist because they really light up in the outdoors, they've been told that doesn't matter. You don't want to squander your talents. Go into engineering. And they go into engineering, and they're great at it, and they get all the highest marks and so on. That person who then pursues work in that field in furtherance of what they're air quotes supposed to do feels like a robot in their own life. They are perfectly executing someone else's instructions. Okay. You're wondering, there's a piece of them that's like, but I wanted to be a wilderness naturalist. When am I going to give myself permission to do that? What will they think of me when I do, Right. That person looks outwardly successful. They were good at it, the math and science, but they didn't love it nearly as much as this other stuff, if at all. And they're miserable.
0: To really take a moment to think just because we're good at something, that doesn't equate our love for it.
1: Oh, no, I was a corporate lawyer, I was a trademark lawyer at a Silicon Valley when the internet was becoming a thing was a very sexy time for that work if that was your thing but it was not my thing and I was good at it and well treated well paid and miserable and I had to figure out how to square that circle because I thought that if I just did what other people expected I'd be happy
0: and I wasn't how did you know how did you know that that right path wasn't right (laughs) oh my god your body tells you just like the body shows you passion in the
1: eyes. I felt a pit in my stomach every Sunday afternoon, about 2 p.m., thinking about going into work the next day, assuming I wasn't already there on a Sunday. My body was saying, it was filling me with dread. My blood pressure was high at work. My doctor was concerned. came in one afternoon, my blood pressure is high. She's like, hmm, let's try it again. Hmm, not so good. Hmm, she said, go buy yourself one of those home kits. Take your blood pressure five times a day. When you wake up, when you go to bed, and three times a day at work, and we're going to study this, and what she showed me was my blood pressure is normal in the morning when I wake up, normal when I'm getting ready for bed, but at work, boom, 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 she said, this is not good for you,
0: so our body, our body tells us,
1: absolutely, headaches, migraines, right, oh, I'm not saying if you have a migraine, you hate your job or your life, but I'm just (laughs) saying, The body is the locus of our, the repository for our feelings, records our experiences, our memories, and we have to pay attention. And here's the thing, Meg. I don't want people to wait until their hair is falling out to make the shift, right? I have a colleague and friend who was a Wall Street banker, and she said her hair was falling out, and that's what allowed her to give herself permission to leave a job she had hated for years sometimes we feel we're weak or there's something wrong with us if we don't want to do this thing that air quotes everybody values the corporate law being a doctor the job on wall street being an engineer like we have to wait until our bodies have broken down because that's the physical evidence we present to our parents and to our peers i can't do this anymore look i have ulcers i can't do this anymore you know i have My hair is falling out, right? The stress has gotten right. It's like we need the physical evidence of our own fracturing to demonstrate to ourselves and others that we should be able to make a shift. And I'm here saying, don't do that in the first place. When you get evidence that your body is feeling unwell and unsafe, do something different. Even if it's the unpopular thing in other people's minds, if you know. I've always wanted to whatever. Do that. Life is short. Life is once, as far as we know. You're not here to be some dog on a leash. You are a human being who's here because of God or the universe or nature, however you believe we all arrived here and are here. You have this shot at being you. You're not here to be a carbon copy of anybody else or a dog on a leash or a robot or a puppet on a string. And as I say this, Meg, some of us who are here because we're parents and are trying to raise our kids, we have stirrings in our own spirit right now listening to me because we know I'm not leading the life Julie's talking about. I really wanted to be a this or that, What right? And that's fine. I get it. I'm valid. I'm here for you, too. I mean, that's what my newest book, Your Turn, is about. It's for all of us. It's me beckoning all of us to actually come on, come on. Yep, 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 mm-hmm, yep, uh-huh, I get it, uh-huh. You deserve to live the life that is yours uniquely to live it is wild it is precious this is your one life as the poet mary oliver said i'm paraphrasing her and i am
0: rooting for you to figure out who you are and go be that person and that this takes us full circle as adults if we could be the example of being lit up on the outside and being in connection with our body, then we can make it safe for our young people to feel connected to their body and lit up by life. And that is the norm. Instead of what we're currently marinating in, we're currently marinating in this disconnection. The show must go on. Let's perform. Let's please, let's do everything for the external and internal, not sure what's going on. So I love this idea of moving towards a time when we're more connected to ourselves so that gives others the permission to be more connected to themselves and then there's space within the relationship we don't feel like their experience is our experience and everything is so intense there's just a little bit more space and then when we have this beautiful space we have the opportunity to grow and learn yeah You know, the one thing we haven't hit upon, this has been
1: an incredibly wide ranging conversation. I hope your listeners are enjoying it. I'm certainly enjoying it. There's a very practical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when do we start giving our kids independence or when do we stop hovering? And my response to both of those, in case it's coming up in listeners' minds, is really you have forgotten, perhaps, that your job as a parent is to raise a person to a place where they can be independent of you because you're going to die one day and you need to know. And as any mammal parent needs to know, my offspring can survive without me, not when they're five or even 12, but 18, 19, 20, 25, we're supposed to have confidence barring significant special needs that this young person can fend for themselves. So childhood is supposed to be teaching them how to do more for themselves instead of handling everything for them and then being surprised we have a 25 year old that can't do anything and there's a four-step method for teaching any kid any skill which is first you do it for them when they're helpless and a babe in arms or a toddler you know then you do it with them you're telling your toddler you're showing them this is how i tie your shoe and you do that over and over you narrate and you're slowly saying see i loop it like this I don't know. step three they're doing it and you're like, oh, i want to get out of the house. Don't be in such a rush that you can't let your kid learn to tie their shoes. So you're tying your seven-year-old shoes or your nine-year-old shoes because you didn't have the patience with a three and four and five-year-old, right? Step four, they can tie their own shoes. Step four, they can cross the street themselves. Step four, they can make a hot sandwich on the stove. We're stuck in step one, doing it for them. Or step two, they're there, but they're not really you know, doing it. We have forgotten that we have to transition from step two to three, which is we're still there, but they're doing it. We're there for the just in case, make sure they don't light the house on fire or drive off a cliff, right? We're still there. Step four, we don't have to be there uh, because we can feel that satisfaction smack our hands together. My kids got it or I'm confident that they can figure it
0: out if, you know, if they don't get it completely right. Oh, Julie, as you talk, my heart is just exploding with gratitude for my parents. Oh, nice. My parents, I think they, well, I know in my body that they instilled a confidence in me that I will work it out. Yeah. If I need support, they are there, but they're not the ones doing it. There are so many major decisions I've made in my life and I've sat down with my parents and they've listened. And they've essentially said, yeah, your turn.
1: Nice. We're
0: here. We'll back you. And as I'm listening to this, I'm just so grateful for that because I know it's not the norm. And I also know that I am trying to do that with our children and it's a challenge. I can see myself wanting to do something different. Just a tiny example. The other day we were at the pool and my four-year-old wanted to ask the Lifesaver something. Because a few weeks ago, a lifesaver came up to him and said, you know, when you're older, you, know, you could be a lifesaver. And so now he's got this in his mind that he's going to be a lifesaver. And we're at the pool and he wanted to talk to the lifesaver. And he said, "Mom, I want, to, I want to ask him something. I'm like, okay, you talk to him. And he said, no, no, I need you to come and talk. And I said, I'm going to be right here. I'm right here. I will watch you. And I know there's a part in your book about talking to strangers. So like approaching eye contact, like I'm going to be right here for you to have this conversation. And I gave him space and I could see his little mind in that tension of, I really want to talk to him, but I kind of want mum to do it. And, oh, this is so uncomfortable. And then I saw him look for eye contact and there was eye contact back and there was no actual conversation, but that was just enough for my four-year-old to be like, oh, he saw me. And I was like, yes, I set up that opportunity where naturally I probably would have got out of the pool and let's walk together. But I knew he had the ability to take the next step on his own.
1: Oh, that's so beautiful right? And in those moments, we yearn for our children to be successful. We don't want them to fail. We don't want the world to be mean to them. Too many of us are not trusting the world. Too many of us are not trusting our kids' ability to cope with what happens. So we're going to get out of the pool. We're going to tap on the lifeguard, lifesaver, chair, And say, hello, my son would love to say hi to you. And we've completely stripped our kid of agency in doing that, right? You did exactly the right thing. I applaud you. As difficult as it is, I'm sure your heart was fluttering a little bit as you watched him nervously negotiating this interaction he was trying to have. And and he made eye contact and got it back. And that will make him more confident for next time you visit the pool. He might just have the courage to open his mouth. And that's he's only four. I mean, this is fantastic. Good for you. And you know what, what you said earlier reminded me, I know I've quoted Kelly Corrigan about there's no bigger buzz on earth than solving your own problem. Um, But she also said her own father, you were just honoring your parents, which I think is really important and correct and and lovely. She said the same thing that her father would basically say to her, you may be alarmed, but I'm not. And it was like the bad thing happened. and And he was just calm and like, you may be alarmed, but I'm not. I just thought that was beautiful.
0: That is really beautiful because when we're not in our young people's stuff, we've got perspective and we've got a wider view. Like I remember being young, just, you know, secondary school and I had this boyfriend, terrible boyfriend, terrible. As a parent, I'm sure you'd be thinking, what are you thinking? Not a good good choice. Eventually I came to my senses, we broke up and telling dad, and it's like, oh, I wonder what that'll say. And he's like, hmm, good choice. It's reassuring
1: when our parents don't flip out, right? With whatever's going on. Let's be clear, listener neither Meg nor I are advocating for us to not care about our kids or abandon them. No, no, no. It's just sort of an emotional presence that is warm and compassionate, but not overly concerned, not freaking out, not acting like now our life is traumatized because you just, you know, didn't play the best game of football, or you didn't get the right grade in a class. No, no, no. That loving presence is like, I love you. I'm interested in you. I'm here to nod and say, good job or better luck next time. And now let's get some dinner, like a little bit smooth, even equilibrium. I know we all, we might need to go to therapy to achieve this. And I'm a big proponent of therapy. In fact, I'm on your podcast right now on a day when A podcast episode has dropped of me and my 22 year old son together being interviewed by a local mental health uh, center uh, where we get family therapy and he has individual therapy, talking about our journey as mother and son from his the earliest days of his ADHD and anxiety diagnoses, which I kind of ignored, didn't quite understand, didn't quite think mattered, to the present where he is fully staring in the face of those diagnoses as are we, and honoring that in him and trying to be the parents he deserves and so talking about this stuff is it's important it's cathartic for me and i want everyone listening to know i'm not perfect i hope you know that whatever advice i'm giving i have tried to give myself and have often learned these lessons the hard way
0: what's that saying that we often teach what we need to learn i feel like i'm constantly in my own head it's a daily practice of trial and error right exactly julie Thank you so much for being a part of this conversation today. I'd love to wrap it up with an invitation to finish a few sentences.
1: I'm so afraid, but yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I am inspired by. Uh,
1: My son, my son is doing the hard work on his mental health journey, journey towards self-awareness, more self-reliance, more confidence in what he can do. And uh, it's been a hard road for him the last couple of years and his progress really inspires me.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And I will make sure to link to that conversation. I can't wait to listen. When life feels hard. (laughs) When
1: life feels hard, I notice the small things I can be grateful for that are present in my life. And I note them to myself, to the other person, if another person is responsible for it. I know that offering myself and the other person recognition of these things for which I'm grateful helps make the hard things uh, less hard or helps me endure the hard things and makes life overall
0: more joyful. An underrated skill is? Human connection. You know, most of us are not good at it.
1: I, I am a human who loves humans and I take deep care when I'm. I, I, I go to great lengths to hear somebody to be present with them, with whatever they're sharing. Uh, it's a very complicated thing, human communication. Uh, you and I can have the same conversation, come away with completely different experiences of it, and they're both true. So I think effective communication, emotionally intelligent communication with other humans is highly underrated. It is everything.
0: I am looking forward to... The end of COVID! <laughs>
1: Ah, and my paperback is coming out in April. That's my next professional milestone. I'm super excited about the paperback of Your Turn will be available. It's a hefty book. It's 459 pages long. So I think in paperback, it'll be slightly less heavy, but still hefty and meaty. And it's very loving content that says to readers, you matter. I'm here for you. Let's go.
0: Yes, you matter. I'm here for you. Let's go. How good is that? Thank you, Julie, for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. I have loved chatting with you. Really
1: appreciate the opportunity to be down under.
0: What a powerful and thought-provoking conversation. If you loved this episode and found it helpful, please share it with anyone you think would benefit from listening or reach out and let me know what resonated with you on Instagram or LinkedIn. To learn how I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindededucation.com. There you can book me to speak at your next professional development day or learn about Energy by Design, my game-changing wellbeing program for educators. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing Best of 2022 series and I look forward to sharing another conversation with you next week.